Well, good morning, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the TR90 Body Brain 30 Support Call. This call happens Monday through Friday at this time, which for me is 6.40 Pacific Time, 7.40 Mountain Time, 8.40 Central Time, and 9.40 Eastern Time. Thrilled to have you along with us. If you have missed these calls, you can pick them up on an application called SoundCloud or wherever you get your podcast by putting in Frank, F-R-A-N-K, Lomas, L-O-M-A-S, and TR90, or Frank Lomas and Solutions for Digit 4 Anti-Aging all pushed together as one word. If you're listening to this one at the podcast and you wish to catch us live, if you dial in to 712-775-8972, and when it prompts for the conference code, putting in 910022, we would be thrilled to have you join us live. For those of you that do not know who I am, I'm Susan Mann out of Portland, Oregon, welcoming you to the call. Um, I've had a huge interest in health, nutrition, and exercise going back more than four decades, and um, just I really like the TR90 program. It was something that when I tried it, worked for me, and highly encourage you to consider it too. Um, part of my success story is that I lost 20 body inches in about six months, but I also seem to have lost my migraines that I had been starting to have two or three times a week. So, um, and it didn't take me until six months to realize, oh yeah, I haven't had one of those in a while. So something about the supplements and the nutrition program and the exercise all combined together really made a huge difference in my life. So when you're first starting out with that TR90 program, that is your one main meal a day. It is two shakes a day, three snacks a day, 30 grams of protein at least three of those meals. Taking your supplement 15 to 20 minutes before a meal is best. If you're not able to do it, just take them with your meals. It'll still work. And many times I was not able to take it beforehand. So is it better to remember to take them than not take them at all? even if you take them with your meals. And I found that it worked just as effectively for me. Uh, seven plus servings of fruits and vegetables every single day. Well, those give you your macronutrients, which is your fats, your proteins, your carbohydrates, your sugars, and your micronutrients, which are your vitamins and minerals, which are also really critical. And the last thing that Fruits uh, and vegetables help with is fiber. And fiber helps in two ways, one of which is for satiety or that feeling of fullness. The other way that it helps is for good digestive health. And for that, guys, we need about 45 grams of fiber daily. Ladies, we need about 32 grams of fiber daily for that good digestive health. And the next thing is exercising moderately to heavily at least five days a week for 30 minutes a day. And that can be whatever you desire it to be for exercise. It could be dancing, swimming, hiking, chopping wood, yard work, house cleaning, whatever floats your boat. If um, you want to do it in a 30-minute chunk, then definitely do that. You can do two 15-minute chunks or three 10-minute chunks. Whatever works into your lifestyle, the important thing is to make sure that you're getting in at least 30 minutes, five days a week. 
And when you're exercising moderately to heavily, well, you need to make sure that you're staying well hydrated. And if you think you're starting to get hungry, stop, drink a glass of water because that will help get your hydration levels back closer to normal. Hydration baseline should be one ounce of water for every two pounds you weigh daily. So that means if you weigh 100 pounds, you should be drinking 50 ounces of water daily. But if you're exercising heavily, you'll need to increase that to offset what you're losing, either through perspiration or um, uh, for exercise or for humidity. So, and hunger dehydration can mask itself as hunger, so it is really key to stay hydrated. And if you're not where you need to be for the minimum for your baseline, set out wherever you are and slowly go back to it. Um, that was a habit I actually started about 35 years ago. I realized that uh, water was really important. It was the one thing that really stuck with me, so I have made sure that I started out wherever I was at and built up to where I needed to be and have just kept that habit up. So that should be of help to you as well. The last thing that I would recommend is seven to nine hours of good quality sleep a night. That good quality sleep uh, does a multitude of things. Your body does system resets while you're sleeping. And then it clears out toxins, repairs muscles and tissues, stores memories, uh, just a whole bunch of different stuff, besides setting your brain up for making good decisions for the next two or three days. So it really is important to get good quality sleep at night. If you're having a challenge with that, see a healthcare uh, provider about that. Maybe do a sleep study, see what's causing you not to get good quality sleep. I know that with my husband, it actually made a huge difference. Um, when he went in for a sleep study, they didn't even let him go the whole night without putting him on um, a CPAP because he would stop breathing and it was interrupting my sleep and it made a huge difference in our life and I can't recommend it enough. So today I'm sharing some information out of a book that's called Fat Chance, Beating the Odds Against Sugar, Processed Food, Obesity, and Disease. It was written by Robert H. Lustig, L-U-S-T-I-G, M-B-M-S-L. And um, when we were last in this, we had been talking about why the food industry has been doing some really crazy things. <clears throat> well, we're going to be talking today about altering your food environment. And he starts us off with a case study, so keep this in mind that this might help set us up for the chapter. John was born a normal weight, but with a voracious appetite and became massively obese by age one. By 15, he was up to 340 pounds. His parents sent him to the Academy of the Sierras, or a fat school, for a year, where his food was restricted, his weight dropped by 100 pounds. Within three months of returning home, he gained 140 pounds. He then came to see Dr. Lustig. Genetic testing showed that he had two mutations in the gene coding for a protein that mediates the satiety signal in the hypothalamus. 
In other words, his hunger, appetite, and obesity were due to a genetic defect. Nonetheless, when his environment was controlled, even he could lose weight. And as this clinical vignette shows us, controlling behavior doesn't work. Con controlling behavior is unsustainable. If your brain can't receive the leptin signal, it thinks it's being starved and it initiates behaviors to gain the weight. But even John, a patient with a genetic defect, could, can lose weight when his environment is controlled and his access to food is regulated, although there are rare exceptions, as with the brain tumor children. The problem is how to control our environment adequately when there is such free access to high sugar and fiber food to help us with our weight. Parents can do so. They must make their homes safe for their children. Our culture needs to adopt the precept that making a home safe for a toddler includes both child safety locks and wholesome food environment. But once the child enters puberty, a state of insulin resistance, independence, allowance, and peer pressure, and the game is over. That's why virtually all anti-obesity interventions work better in younger children. Our environment is toxic because it is an insulogenetic and in turn obesogenic. And for the mass majority of obese people, in order to reverse the process, the goal is to get the insulin down. That starts with what you eat, and it means altering your point of contact, your relationship with your supermarket, grocery store, and restaurants. The public is preoccupied and yet completely flummoxed by the low-fat versus low-carb diet controversy. They can't be further apart both on the evolutionary scene and in the supermarket where the meat and produce aisles are located at opposite sides of the store. The proponents of each of these diets aggressively dispute the others. Today there are more authors in this arena than there are than any other aspect of health. Scientists trash talk their opponents as if bringing the other side down will elevate one's cause. Medical societies have taken sides and their venom has created a noxious atmosphere. The fallout from this food fight is, has confused the issue and has given the entire discipline of nutrition a bad name. Most people will put themselves on a diet in an attempt to lose weight ostensibly by controlling their food environment. But what does this mean? Why do these diets work for some but not for others? That's the most, what's the most rational diet for you? Do any of them perform as advertised? There are more fad uh, diets than there are cold remedies. Furthermore, when a diet doesn't work, the assumption is that you weren't compliant with it. But compliance is a measure of change in behavior. Sustainable behavior change means changing the environment. To pry behavior and environment apart first, let's
start with the basic precepts of what makes a good diet. As an example, let's examine a sales diet and determine why it failed. Low-fat diets, hmm, dismal failure. As discussed in a previous chapter, low-fat diet is what got us into this mess. It started out as a prescription to prevent heart disease and not obesity. The link between dietary fat and heart disease is based on the findings regarding genetic disease called familial hypercholesterolemia, or FSH, which affects 1% of the population. In the 1980s, a low-fat diet became the diet recommended by every health organization in America. AHA and both ADAs, the American Diabetes and the American Diabetic Association, or Dietetics Association, the National Heart, Lung, and Blood Pressure Institute, and so on, to control obesity as well as to prevent heart disease. Their mantra was that eating less fat would reduce the number of total number of calories and contribute to weight loss because a calorie is a calorie, except it's not. So what happened to the other 99% of the population? Does the low-fat diet work for them? As the Occupy Wall Street movement says, the other 99% got screwed. Not only does it not work in a way that it is routinely employed, but it is likely detrimental for three different reasons. First, a low-fat diet tastes like cardboard. The flavor is in the fat, so you up the calories to compensate, increasing your insulin and your weight. Second, as described earlier, there are two LDLs, the large buoyant type A LDL, which accounts for about 80% of the circulating LDL, and is increased by the saturated fat. But the large, buoyant LDL has a neutral impact and by itself poses little risk for heart disease. Conversely, small, dense type B LDL, which accounts for more for the other 20%, is driven by dietary carbohydrates. It is a type B that contributes to heart disease. Third, if dietary fats were merely sources of energy, then we wouldn't have a class of essential fatty acids that we literally cannot live without. We need to eat certain dietary fats for our nervous system and immune systems, cell membranes, and to make certain hormones. If you have a choice, you can eat good foods in your diet or you can make bad ones in your liver. Wouldn't you rather opt the good ones. And the reason the low-fat diet is a dismal failure is explained by the science. It's not the fat. It's not the carbohydrate. It's the fat and the carbohydrate together that cause metabolic problems. Sugar provides just that. The low-fat diet is rife with it. The lack of fiber in the processed low-fat food means that the rate of flux of both fat and carbohydrates in the liver is heightened, putting your poor liver even under, under even more stress, the epitome of failure. As you will see, all successful diets share all 
I'll share three precepts. Low sugar, high fiber, which means high micronutrients and fat and carbohydrates consumed together in the presence of an offsetting amount of fiber. Anything after that is window dressing. Um, on Thursday, we'll probably jump into some of the other diets, um, like the Atkins and the veg- vegetarian vegan diets. This is Susie Mann from Portland, Oregon, signing out on 2020, uh, 20, huh, excuse me, October 24th, 2023. Thrilled to have had you along with us at the top of the hour. If you scoot over to Facebook, One Team Global Live, one of our leaders will be sharing some information on building a new skin business. If you want to share any thoughts or comments, you can either voice them after I take us off mute, or you can send me a text at 503-502-4863. Let me know you're part of the TR90 group, and um, I welcome any thoughts or comments. Hope you have a great day. Tomorrow we'll have Frank up, and like I said, I'll be back on Thursday. So hopefully you found that a benefit. I know that I always do when I go back and review some of these notes. Um, like I said, this is fat out of a book called Fat Chance by Robert H. Lested. And he is a medical doctor as well as a um, dedicated fat scientist, I guess you could say, because that's kind of his area of expertise is working with kids who have obesity and trying to figure out how to make them healthier. And if there's no comments, I am going to take the recording off and scoot on with my day. Hope you have a great day. We hope to see you back here tomorrow for prayer.